2: Welcome to The Science of Success, the number one evidence based growth podcast on the internet, bringing the world's top experts right to you. Introducing your hosts, Matt Bodner and Austin Fable.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Science of Success, the number one evidence based growth podcast on the internet with over 5 million downloads and listeners just like you in over 100 countries. I'm your co host, Austin Fable, and today we've got an absolutely incredible episode back from the archives, Dr. Amy Cuddy. But before we dig in, are you enjoying the show and the content we're going to put out every week for you? If so, there are two really, really easy, yet very impactful and important things you could do for Matt and I. First, leave us a quick five star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It doesn't matter where you get the show but leave us a five-star review. It helps others like you find the show and learn from all of our interviews and incredible guests. Next, go to our homepage at www.successpodcast.com and sign up for our email list today. Our subscribers on the email list are the first people that are in the know about all the comings and goings of the show, but you also get access to exclusive content you're not going to find anywhere else. Specifically, when you sign up, you're going to get our free course we spent a ton of time on, aptly called... How to make time for what matters most. Are you a fan of the life. show,
4: and have you been enjoying now, you on the, the go, content like that we put together are, for you?
3: Maybe you're on if you a have, wall. I would maybe love maybe it you're if you signed out. up for
4: our email Good for list. You. We have Getting some amazing content on there, along the with a really great free course control. that we put a ton of Start time to called "How to Just text the word "smarter." That's T
3: E R to the number
4: four two two two. And you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that. If, if you, you haven't already, check out last week's episode of sign Astronaut, astronaut right on the Scott Kelly. That's we dig into what it takes to become an astronaut, or if survive you're
3: training.
1: your phone right now, training. all you have to do is text the, the word smarter. That's to
3: the number From the first human to ever spend a year in space, Scott Kelly. Now, on this episode, we have an incredible interview from the archives with a great, great guest, Dr. Amy Cuddy. Dr. Amy Cuddy is an American social psychologist, author, and speaker. She current lectures on the psychology of leadership and influence at Harvard University. And she and her work have won several awards, including being named one of 50 Women Who Are Changing the World by Business Insider. She is the author of the 2015 best selling book, Presence Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. And her 2012 TED Talk is the second most viewed TED Talk of all time. Her work has been featured in Time, Wired, Fast Company, NPR, and countless academic journals. It's a great conversation. That's why we're bringing it back for the new audience from the archives. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy our interview with Dr. Amy Cuddy. Today, we
4: have another awesome guest on the show, Dr. Amy Cuddy. Amy is an American social psychologist, author, and speaker. She currently lectures on the psychology of leadership and influence at Harvard University. She and her work have won several awards, including being named one of the 50 women who are changing the world by Business Insider. She's the author of the 2015 best-selling book, Presence, Bring Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. And her 2012 TED Talk is the second most viewed talk of all time. Her work's been featured in Time, Wired, Fast Company, NPR, and countless academic journals. Amy, welcome to the Science of Success.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Matt.
4: Well, we're very excited to, to have you on the show today and to dig into the meat of some of, these, some of the work that you've done. I'd love to start out with presence. It's something so simple, and, and yet people often view it uh, sort of the wrong way or, or misinterpret it. And I'd love to understand when you talk about presence and its importance, what does it mean to you?
2: Yeah, I think when people hear the word, and it is used a lot these days, especially when people are talking about things like mindfulness, it's not well defined in those contexts and discussions. So people are sort of left to define it on their own. And what I find they come to to in their own sort of process of defining it is that it must be some kind of permanent state that you get to if you, you know, do enough meditation retreats and it's like a state that you get to where you're you're always present and that's not the way it works at all presence is it it, it is inevitably fleeting no one can be present all the time it's a momentary state it's not a, a permanent state and it's the state in which you are attuned to and able to access and comfortably express your authentic best self. And now authentic best self, there's another phrase that I think is used all the time and not well-defined. So let me just take a moment to say, by authentic, I don't mean unfiltered, right? I mean, there are times when we need to be mindful of of who we're speaking with and, and, and be respectful in our interactions and you can still be authentic. I'm talking about the person that you are in the best moments of your life. So if you think back over the last, say, you know, two or three years. Think about the very best moments. And these moments would be times when you feel totally connected. You feel, you know, you probably it's probably an interaction with other people. You feel like that connection is real and deep. You feel on, you feel seen, you feel heard, and you feel that you're seeing and hearing them. And you feel, you know, you feel happy and relieved. That is that's your authentic best self. So the question is, how do you bring that person? to your most challenging situations where you're least likely to be present, right? Because you're so distracted by all of your fears. So how do you bring that authentic best self, which probably happens in you know, the, the, the moments of your life when you're with people who you know and care about and love and trust, how do you bring that into to interactions with you know, new people where you're maybe pitching something or interviewing or giving a talk? How do you bring it into those situations?
4: That's a great fundamental question. And I want to dig into it. Before we do, I want to just come back to something. I think you've pointed out a really important major misconception that a lot of people have about presence. Tell me more about this idea that we can't be present all the time and that it's it's a fleeting state.
2: I mean, we're human, right? It, and and so there are, there are always thoughts and distractions that are, you know, that are sort of poking their heads in and, and pulling us away. And, and that's, that's okay, right? That's, we would be uh, artificial intelligence if, if we were able to do that. So uh, I, I think that we have to let ourselves selves off the hook a bit around expecting ourselves to be present all the time. Even if you know, you're in a really engaging, say, talk or you're watching a great movie or you know, things that, that still fully engage you, you're still going to be distracted at moments. You know you might have to go to the bathroom. I'm just giving you a really simple idea, but like that 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 distracts you from being present, right? So it, it so to, to let yourself off the hook that you can't you just can't be present all the time. It's impossible.
4: And how does this idea of the authentic best self interact with the concept of flow?
2: Mm, I think there's a lot to it. I, I guess I would say flow is kind of a supreme state of this that that lasts also a bit longer. so it, it might be sort of. Certainly people are present in those moments, but they also may not be interacting with other people when, when they're in a flow state. And presence, the kind of presence that I talk about usually involves human interaction and the kinds of pressures that come from human interaction, like the feeling that people are judging us or the feeling that the stakes are really high in this situation and that, that throws us off from being able to hear what the other person is, is, is saying. So flow, I do think lasts a bit longer, And it's kind of like an an extreme form of presence.
4: I like that distinction that the presence you're talking about is about situations where we're interacting with other people, where the stakes are high, where we feel like we're being judged. How do we bring presence to those types of situations and what prevents us from being present in those high stakes environments?
2: Well, I think the key is that we feel powerless in these moments. So feeling that you're being judged and being very focused on the outcome as opposed to the process and again yeah feeling this that the stakes are very high make it really hard for us to even remember who we are well enough to be able to access that person and present that person and the interesting thing is that when we're not present it reveals itself to others right and, and 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 in some ways not being present which is the same as sort of not bringing your authentic self to the situation. It looks like deception. So I get into the lie detection work, with, which I think is, is really a fascinating piece that, that fits in here. When people are lying, so when they're intentionally deceiving, you know there are these tells, right? There are these signs that not everyone, but most people uh, sort of inadvertently send signals that they're not telling the truth. And and those the, the main one there is not eye contact. Eye contact is actually a very poor, poor signal of lying because people learn very different things from their parents about whether you should make eye contact when you're being questioned. They learn different things in different cultures. Men and women might differ on that. Introverts and extroverts differ. But the, what you are looking for are Asynchronies between the words the person is saying and the body language the person is using. Because when you're lying, you are suppressing one true story and you're telling another different false story. Each of those stories comes with a set of emotions. So you're basically not only suppressing the story and you're good at doing that with words, but you're also suppressing the emotions that go with that story. And you're trying to fake another story with words and also get the body language right to go with that. And it's almost impossible for us to do that. So what happens is that we see these asynchronies between the emotions that go with the words and the emotions that are leaking out through people's body language. When you're nervous and not authentic, the same kinds of things happen so people seem asynchronous they seem off their words don't quite match match what they're doing with their bodies because you have too much you know you have too much to think about and not enough cognitive bandwidth to be telling the story and also matching your nonverbals to it it's too much choreography so when you are present the opposite happens right so You become aligned and synchronous. Your words match your body language. You're not getting in the way of yourself. You're being yourself. So that's one thing that comes across to other people. Another is that you believe your story and people hear that and see that, right? So you buy what you're selling. If you think about the show Shark Tank, which is, I think, a guilty pleasure for many of us, you know, I love, I love as a a psychologist and body language person, I love analyzing what's happening on that show and trying to predict who's going to do well and who's not going to do well. And what I find is that the people who do the best, and this is really clearly backed up by a lot of research, which I'll talk to you about in a minute, but is that the people who do the best are the ones who clearly buy what they're selling. There's no reservation. You can hear, you can hear their conviction, their belief about what they're selling. And that is so important. That's an important cue, right? If you're not going to eat the cookie that you're selling, why would anyone else eat the cookie that you're selling? So, you know, when you're present and bringing your authentic best felt self forward, you believe that self, right? That That's what's happening. And what the research shows is that that is a really important variable, this, this authenticity variable in studies that have looked at VC pitches or job interviews, that people who are, are you know, have conviction about who they are and belief in their story do much better. And then, so I would say the third piece, so you now have synchrony between words and nonverbals. You have believing your story. The third, and I think this is so important because people often conflate these two concepts. When you are present, you communicate confidence, not arrogance. So arrogance is often seen as a a sign of confidence it's not it's it's in fact it's more closely related to what we would call fragile high self-esteem so it's it's like like people who report they have high self-esteem but they really don't it can be punctured really easily confidence is a tool that invites people in it's appealing people find it attractive arrogance is exactly the opposite it's a it's a weapon at the very least it's a wall that you build to prevent people from challenging you to kind of intimidate them and of course no one likes arrogance no one likes arrogance and and they may not challenge you but that's not because they they believe you it's because they want to get rid of you right so confidence is is what you're going for not arrogance and when you're present you're able to be confident and really fully grounded in who you are and so for that reason You don't feel defensive when people challenge you or push back. You know, you feel like, huh, you know, that's an interesting question. And and I want my idea to be as good as it can be. So let me try to engage with that. When you when you're arrogant, you're not going to be able to receive that kind of pushback in a constructive way. So those three things together are great predictors of outcomes in things like, you know, hiring decisions and investments. And. They're not, they're not false signals. If you look down the road six months later after those people are hired or, or after someone invests in them, these are the people who actually are doing better. They work harder. They are more creative. They're more likely to inspire people around them. They stay at the job longer.
0: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret?
4: I love this idea that we might get the words right when we're maybe being not as genuine as possible or not as authentic as possible. And we're not being our best selves, but it's often the non-verbals that creep in and communicate a different story. And that's why people may feel something is off about a speech or presentation or a, a performance in a high stakes moment when on the surface level, things seem fine. Tell me a little bit more about the science behind behind that and behind all of these phenomenons.
2: Well, let me let me say a little bit about sort of what what's happening. I mean, first of all, the the studies that I was talking about what's happening, I mean, the way that they're, they're they're figuring out what is mediating the relationship between sort of the person and the outcome is by having experts, you know, code the videos of these interactions on these variables that I listed, you know, the sort of. Uh, confidence and authenticity and synchronous body language it's not that the people who are making the investment decisions know that, that that's why they're doing it they, they're not quite aware of why they like this person better it's not something that, that they can quite articulate uh, w- which i think is really really very interesting but what it comes down to is that people who feel powerful and by by powerful i'm not talking about power over other people but power, power to do, power to bring that best self forth, power, a belief in yourself, self-efficacy, agency, that's what I'm talking about. so non-zero sum power, which I call personal power. people who feel personally powerful are able to be present, and people who feel powerless are just not able to be to be present. And when you look at the research on power, which is and I'm not just talking about power posing, I'm talking about a much, much bigger, much broader area of research that includes literally thousands of of psychological experiments from the last couple of decades, what you see is this really fascinating pattern. And the pattern is this. When people feel powerful, it affects their their feelings, their thoughts, their behaviors, and even their physiology. When they feel powerless, it also affects those things, but in the opposite way. And, And let me describe it this way. When you feel powerful, It activates what we call the behavioral approach system. So you feel more optimistic and more happy uh, and more confident. You think more openly, more creatively. You do better on cognitive tasks. You generally see the world as a place that's filled with opportunities, not threats. You see new people not as potential predators or competitors. You see them as potential allies and friends. You are much more likely just to take action. When you feel powerless, you don't act. You know, you, you, you freeze or you flee, right? So you don't take action when you feel powerless. When you feel powerful, you do, including power on behalf of others. So think, think, about, think about all of the, the, the research on bystander non-intervention. So why do bystanders not intervene when they see a clear emergency? When you look at some of this research on adults, you find that one of the strongest predictors is that people don't intervene. They don't act because they feel powerless. People who feel powerful are much more likely to step in and help a victim. So this is not just a selfish kind of or a self-serving outcome. The last is that it affects your physiology and in exactly the same way. So people feel stronger, they feel less stressed, but you also see that they're their cortisol levels are are lower. So that's your, your one of your stress hormones. Their cortisol reactivity is less strong. So in, in other words, when something stressful happens, their cortisol doesn't spike as high as it does for somebody who feels powerless. They live longer. They have a lower rate of stress-related illness. So all of that together, again, think of it as it power allows you to expand and approach the world. Right, So you, you, the world becomes bigger and friendlier to you. Powerlessness does the opposite. So when you feel powerful, you can be present. When you feel powerless, it absolutely blocks you from being present.
4: So many things I want to dig into from that. Before we get too much deeper, I think it's worthwhile to dig into the difference between what you call personal power or power and what many people might have as a traditional understanding or colloquial definition of power.
2: Yeah, yeah. So when it's funny, when I ask people, you know, if we're doing a free association, and I say the word power, what's the next word you think of? And the word that comes up most often is corruption.
4: That's what I thought of.
2: (laughs) Yeah, did you? Right. So that's, that's fascinating, right? Because what that says to me is, wow, that's the people have one definition of power. They think of power as, you know, political power, they think of it as hierarchical power. and then the cases that are most salient to them are those where you see a powerful person behaving in a way that's, that involves corruption. The truth is that power does not corrupt. Power reveals. Power reveals who you are. Power only corrupts when it's interacting with other forces like, you know, certain personalities and all kinds of societal and economic pressures and structures that that facilitate corruption. So the first thing is to make peace with the idea of power. It's okay to feel powerful. But the second is to realize that power is not just power over others. It's not just controlling others or controlling resources. It is, again, it's it's about you feeling that you control your own resources, right? Your own inner resources. It's the feeling that you have some control in your life, you know, that you're not being controlled by by other forces, that you're making those decisions and that, you you know, you, you have this intrinsic Feeling of motivation and control. So that's the kind of, yeah, that's the kind of power that I'm talking about. And that kind of power certainly doesn't corrupt. Generally, I think it's good for, for all of us to feel that way and for you to want the people in your organization to feel that way. This is, again, not zero-sum. It's not hierarchical. Everyone in your organization, people who work for you, can feel powerful, and it's taking nothing away from anyone else. It's only contributing to their ability to be present, to be passionate, to show up, to do their best.
4: Tell me more about the approach system and this idea that we expand into the world when we feel powerful.
2: I really think of it in this sort of, I sort of imagine this person stepping forward and opening their arms, you know, and, and, well, this sounds totally corny and I never thought of it this way, but, but the scene from Titanic where Leonardo DiCaprio and you know where they're standing at the front with their arms open. I mean, that, that is a, that's a moment of feeling really powerful, like very confident and connected and, and having a sense of agency and, and freedom, right? So think of it as a kind of power liberates you to be who you are, it frees you. That's really what the approach system is about. It's about not going into your terrified, you know, fight, flee, or faint mode. So it's kind of the opposite of that. And what happens in these stressful situations, like say, let's just use job interview, which is a stressful situation that almost everyone will encounter at some time in their lives job interviews feel they basically activate that fightly or faint system. And the thing is, that's adaptive. If you are actually being chased by a tiger, right, that's what you should do, (laughs) you should run. But when you're in an interaction, like a job interview, that that system doesn't help you at all. Right? It's it's kind of a flaw in 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 the way that we're wired. And so what you got to figure out is sort of how do you get in there and turn off that response. And instead, respond as someone who is has composure, has confidence, has this feeling of power, knows that no matter what happens in this situation, they're not going to die, right? They're not going to die if they don't get the job.
4: I want to look at the flip side of this and, and start to understand why don't people have power? Why do people lose power? Why do people feel powerless?
2: One thing is that when we begin to feel powerless, we consent to that feeling. So we don't notice it as something that we should resist. And we do just allow ourselves to fall into it. One of the things that I would love to do is it just in in the world is to get people to understand that people's psychological well-being, their subjective well-being is not just about happiness and lack of stress. Because that's how people generally think of it. When they think about like how well do you feel, they think, well, I'm, I'm happy and I'm not very stressed. Those two things are important. I think there's now you know quite a bit of research on the importance of feeling a sense of purpose. So there's discussion about that. But what I don't often hear people talk about, and what ends up being a really important predictor of sort of of thriving is that people also feel that sense of agency they feel they can get things done so think about if you were trying to improve sort of increase the well-being of a struggling society and you wanted to measure the long-term outcomes of that you wouldn't just want to make them feel happy and less stressed you'd also want to make them feel powerful right you want them to feel that they can change their situation they can get things done not just continue to live as they are right so so Power is such an important piece of your general well-being. So as and as you start to feel less powerful and again, personally powerful, note that like start to pay attention to the moments when you collapse, like when do you start to slouch? When do you start to, you know, sort of lower your eyes and maybe you know wrap yourself with your, tor- with your, your torso with your arms? Th- think about what people do when their team is losing or when they are on the losing team in sports. Yeah, sports has so much to teach us about these things. And I am, I'm a huge baseball fan. So I just finished watching the world series and my team won go Red Sox. But it was very fun to watch what was happening in the stands. Cause you, you see, as, as your team is struggling, everyone, all of a sudden they have their hands on their faces. They're covering their eyes. They're touching their necks. They're doing all kinds of sort of contractive body language and, That's a sign of feeling powerless. It's what animals do when they don't have power. They're hiding themselves. They're making themselves invisible. They're making themselves small. That's a sign of feeling powerless. So when you notice that you're starting to do that, two things, try to figure out what was the stimulus that led you to react that way? What caused you to react that way? Because that gets you to know yourself and what are the cues that that you should sort of get in touch with to understand when you're losing that sense of power but also don't allow yourself to collapse. So that's exactly when you actually need to sort of physically expand. So say you're giving a talk and you start to you know, realize that you're, you're you know, doing nervous things like touching your arm with your opposite hand or touching your face, or maybe you're, you know, you're speaking very quickly, which is another way of, of contracting. Instead of doing those things, slow down, open up, uh, your shoulders, take some deep, expansive breaths, and all of that will reset you. It triggers a relaxation response. It allows you to collect yourself, your collect your thoughts. It certainly does not signal powerlessness to, to an audience because pausing and slowing down does exactly the opposite. It signals power. But all of those things are ways in which you can resist sort of collapsing into that feeling of powerlessness.
4: And what from a larger perspective, outside of just moments of powerlessness, what causes people to be or feel powerless in their lives?
2: Well, lots of things. And, and I, I don't want to dismiss all of the structural and institutional and real things that make us feel powerless, like systematic prejudices and for all kinds of unfair inequalities, illness, right? So losing a job. In fact, chronic unemployment is the strongest predictor of unhappiness and, and powerlessness, especially for men. That that's a, a, a very strong predictor of you know long term power sort of feelings of powerlessness and depression. So there are a lot of things that can do it, but I and I'm not saying that it's easy to make yourself feel powerful, but you have to try. You have to at least resist that that urge to contract and hide and go into the fetal position.
4: And I think my perspective on it at least, and I'm curious what your perspective is, the most effective strategy if you're in a tough situation like that is to try and create agency for yourself, try and create action, try and create results. And having the mindset of or being in a place of powerlessness is often the most counterproductive thing you can do in those types of scenarios.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's. Because you're also ceding control of your own outcome and your own thoughts. And you end up leaving those situations with a sense of regret as, as opposed to a sense of satisfaction. One of the interesting things about these stressful situations uh, where people feel present or not present or powerful or not powerful is that when people feel powerless, they don't feel like they've been seen. So they leave something like a job interview feeling like, oh, I wish I had shown them who I am. So they leave with a sense of regret and they kind of they can't get themselves out of the cycle of wanting a do-over, but you don't get a do-over, you just have to move on and not pick up like another piece of baggage that you carry in with you to the next situation that looks the same way. But people often, that sense of regret is, is all about what happened in that moment. It's not actually about the outcome. So when people feel present and powerful in something like a job interview. When they leave, they feel satisfied and they feel much more accepting of the outcome, even if it's not the one they desired. They feel that, that, that what happened was fair, you know, that they were seen, they were heard. And if they weren't chosen, that's OK. It's, you know, maybe there was somebody who was a better fit. It's not it, it doesn't reflect so strongly on them in a negative way. But I think that, you know, for me, I, I very much do focus on these feelings of expansiveness versus, you know, contractiveness and what you can do to prepare yourself before you go in. Because one thing that people are not great at doing when they feel bad about themselves is telling themselves that they're powerful. So when you feel anxious and powerless, and then you tell yourself, oh no, I'm actually powerful, now you just feel like you're lying to yourself. So it can make it even more salient, so you can get a rebound effect. You know, sort of a heightened sense of powerlessness. So we're not very good at kind of talking ourselves down off the ledge, but we are good at walking ourselves down off the ledge, you know, at, at, at changing the way we carry ourselves, the way we breathe, the way we move, our our speech, our posture, all of those things. It's again, not just about standing like a superhero. There's so much more research out there from many different fields that show the same pattern. When we expand, we feel powerful and we can control our expansiveness. So if you start at the sort of, from the head down to the feet, some ways to expand, and I've already mentioned this, but speak more slowly. In studies done at at Stanford GSB, researchers like Deb Grunfeld have found that when, when you get people to slow down their speech, they feel more powerful and others perceive them as more powerful. So slow your speech, Breathing, right? Do you breathe shallowly or or do you breathe deeply? When you breathe deeply and expansively and, you know, really fill your lungs, you are triggering what's called the relaxation response. And that is a, a complex, you know, circuitry in your mind that's telling your body that you are not in a threatening situation, you are in a safe situation. So you, you don't go into fight, flee, or faint mode. You feel comfortable. So there you've got just two things that you can do, you know, starting at the head. And certainly even simple posture, like sitting up straight, is a way of expanding. So your shoulders should be you know, back and down, and your chest should be open. You should basically do what, what you would do when your grandmother might have told you to sit up straight. Studies show that people who are clinically depressed... If you get them to sit up straight for just two to three minutes, which goes against the typical posture of someone who's depressed, they feel significantly happier. The same then applies to people who are not depressed, as social psychologists have shown. Then you have complex posture, which is what, what, what I've been studying, is the various ways in which we expand in sort of more complex ways, not just sitting up straight. So having your limbs away from your torso, having your feet apart. When you do that before you go into a stressful situation, you feel more powerful. You don't do it while you're in the stressful situation because it comes across as really rude. right? So you're not going to man spread when you're sitting in a job interview. You're not going to stand like a superhero or in the victory pose when you're in a job interview. But you can do it in advance and even movement. So studies uh, by a guy named Nico Troia who's Queen's University in in outside of Toronto, shows that even walking changes the way we feel. So when we feel happy, for example, you know, we walk in a kind of more expansive, bouncy way. When we feel sad, we get really contractive. So when he has people walk in this way that mirrors happiness, and they don't know that that's what they're doing, they just know they're walking in a way that that sort of matches what they're looking at on a screen they end up feeling happier and more powerful than people who walked in this contractive way so all of those things override the doubts that happen when you're trying to change your mind with your mind instead use your body to change your mind carry yourself in an expansive way with a sense of pride with a sense of purpose, right? When you carry yourself that way, that's you know you, that's that's the world that, that manifests in front of you.
3: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on Auto They're really good at numbers.
2: Auto Trader.
4: That's exactly what I wanted to get into next. Uh, tell me more about. The notion of the mind mind connection versus the mind body connection
2: the mind mind connection sort of encompasses so much different work and and so much of that is important, right so cognitive behavioral therapy, for example i mean certainly the, it in many cases for many people that's a hugely important part of you know reducing stress or or improving your your mental health so i don't mean to be dismissive of it, but again, if we're talking about sort of performance in stressful situations we're just not very good at talking ourselves out of feeling bad, especially when we're anxious. But the body overrides that. The body kind of skips that step. If the body is acting as if it's not threatened, the mind begins to fall in line with what the body is doing. You know, We're animals, this is a very basic, sort of primitive reaction. I mean, the same is true, there's a, a woman who is a horse trainer who I, I talk to quite often, who has developed this technique. She works with very submissive, shy horses. Her job is to kind of bring them out of their shells. What she finds is that, first of all, horses can't talk themselves out of it, right? So they're, they're just not able to, and the horse trainer can't talk them out of it. So she changes their body language through these different kinds of games and interactions so that eventually she gets them to behave in a way that emulates you know, the airs and graces of powerful horses. And when they do that, a period of time, they, she, it's like it snaps them out of it and they, they, they come out of their shell and they become much more willing to interact with other horses. Their health improves. They're more likely to be able to go to competition and do well in competition. It just kind of goes on and on. So the same is true for humans. I think in, in these moments of anxiety, remember that you're an animal, you know, and so use some of these very primitive approaches to snap yourself out of it
4: what a great example. And it, it crystallizes things because as you said, you can't convince a horse to come out of that behavior pattern. And yet just with an intervention at the mind body level, you can create behavior change.
2: Right. And when you think about sort of just another example, cause people often ask me this when it comes to it's athletes often ask me this, well, what about visualization? So think about, you know, an alpine skier visualizing the course before she's you know before she, the gates open is that does that mean that that doesn't work and i would say no it it doesn't mean that i mean an alpine skier so it's like let's talk about Lindsey Vonn and you often do see her before i do i love watching ski racing you see her before she races with her eyes closed and she's sort of um, you see her sort of gently going through the motions of going down that course so there is a physical piece but she's also visualizing the course and she's visualizing how she wants to do you know, as she skis down through that course. Does that work for her? Hell yeah, it's definitely working for her. But Lindsay Vaughn is not necessarily feeling incredibly stressed and self-doubting before every race. But the point is that we're really not good at that when we are feeling self-doubting and anxious already off the bat.
4: Another piece of this that I want to dig into is imposter syndrome. How does that play into all of this?
2: Imposter syndrome is it's not just about feeling powerless. It's about feeling powerless. It's about feeling that you somehow accidentally got the job or the award or whatever it is, and that you're going to be found out at any moment. So it's, it also involves what we call pluralistic ignorance, which is we think that everyone else who has that job or goes to that fancy school is feeling great and confident and deserving. They're not. Imposter syndrome is so pervasive when you take places like at Harvard Business School, for, for example, 75 to 85 percent of students report feeling imposter syndrome, right? So other people are not walking around feeling like, oh, I totally deserve to be here. They're feeling the same kinds of doubt. So I think the first thing is to realize that you're not alone. Like Everyone is feeling imposter syndrome at some point in their lives. And if you are in a situation with with people who've really excelled, and you know, in a sort of competitive situation, chances are a lot of people are feeling that way. They're feeling that if they really put themselves out there, someone's going to realize that they were an admissions mistake and come and tap them on the shoulder and say, sorry, but we made a mistake and you have to leave, right? So so imposter syndrome definitely is coming from a, seer, a feeling of powerlessness, but it, it becomes even more complex in how we think about it. Now, when, you know, and it's very context sp- specific, so people could feel like an imposter you know, say at Harvard Business School when they're being a student, and go home and feel totally fine, and not feel like an imposter with their spouse. Right? It's 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 not that you you're walking around feeling powerless all the time. You're feeling powerless and as if you're an imposter in this one particular context. So when imposter syndrome was first studied in the in the 1970s by a woman named Pauline Clance, she originally thought that it was much much more common among women than men, but then she learned pretty quickly that it wasn't. It was just that women were more comfortable telling her that they were feeling that way. So women are more comfortable talking about it. And this is one of the ways in which gender stereotypes, I think, really hurt hurts men. So men feel that they're not allowed to talk about those things, to share those kinds of fears and weaknesses. And, and vulnerabilities. And so as a result, the, the research and the sort of therapy around imposter syndrome was first focused just on women. She realized that as soon as, you know, she was doing rather than interviews, anonymous surveys, men were reporting imposter syndrome at exactly the same level as women. So men are feeling like imposters. And, and I think that the burden on men, that, so this whole idea that it's a women's problem is not only bad for women. I think it's bad for women because it's like another thing to heap on top of the pile of like, all of these things that women are afraid of, but it's also a burden on men because if men believe that men generally don't feel like imposters, then and and you you do feel like an imposter, that's really going to make it even harder on you. So let me just like rest assured to all the men in the audience, most of the the men that you know, eighty five percent of them probably have felt like imposters.
4: You know, it's funny. I uh, out of college for a number of years. I worked at Goldman Sachs, and in, in my train analyst training for the first six weeks on the job, I was crushing imposter syndrome the entire time. So I know exactly what it feels like.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and probably almost everyone in your group felt the same way.
4: So, what can we do to overcome or, or deal with imposter syndrome, other than the awareness that it's so
2: prevalent? Well, I mean, again, sort of notice when you feel it. So, what are the things that make you feel it often? It's kind of funny and counterintuitive, but things that make people feel like imposters are the things that make you look like the exact opposite of of an imposter to outsiders. So winning an award, for example, being recognized publicly for something that you did well, that makes imposter syndrome momentarily or, you know, for a brief period of time, worse for a lot of people. So realize that the reason you're feeling that way when those things happen is just because you're feeling very, because, because it's public, you feel exposed and you feel more afraid that you're going to be found out. So, so knowing sort of what are the things that stoke that feeling for you is important. And knowing that, you know, as you learn the ropes, you're going to get over that. One of the people that I talked to in the book is the you know, wildly successful sci-fi writer Neil Gaiman, who's written you know two dozen international best-selling books. Um, I'm sure m- many people in the audience will know who he is. He's also just a delightful, genuine, open person who admits to feeling imposter syndrome, and and he was talking to me about a time when he was writing this book called American Gods, which was going to be his big, big novel. And he was talking to, you know, a a friend of his, a, a writer sort of mentor of his. And, and he said something like, I think I've gotten like over the imposter syndrome. And I think I finally figured out how to write a novel. And his friend says, you never figure out how to write a novel. You just figure out how to write the novel that you're on, right? The one that you're doing now. And so the idea is that it's kind of this game of whack-a-mole. It's going to keep on popping up again, but don't panic about it. You know, go, okay, I noticed that feeling. I'm, I'm going to let go of it now and not sort of perseverate or ruminate about it. And eventually it just goes away. And you might feel it again when you go into a new context, but but maybe that's a good thing. It means you're challenging yourself. You know, you're doing things that They're making you push yourself.
4: For listeners who want to concretely implement some of the tactics, themes, ideas that we've talked about today, what would be one piece of homework that you would give them to really concretely use these ideas in their lives?
2: I think that if let's just talk about sort of the expansiveness, the sort of body mind piece. So I would say, first of all, before you go into a stressful situation, prepare by using expansive postures you know the warrior pose in yoga you know stretch out you know make yourself as big as you feel comfortable doing Uh, but in private right not in front of other people you want to do it in private because you don't want to feel you don't want to offend people but you also don't want to feel that you're being judged do that before you walk in when you walk in Use posture that is that you have good posture, carry yourself with a sense of pride, but not in a way that's domineering. You're not challenging somebody to a duel. You know, you're trying to have an interaction where you connect with them, where they see you as competent, but they also see you as likable and trustworthy and engaged and as somebody who wants to be there, who doesn't feel that he or she is the most important person in the room, but 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 as someone who's there to connect. So, so. You know, huge, big, big poses before, reasonable, good posture during, and use also open gestures. So gestures, you know, palms up, for example, that show that you are comfortable being there. Mind your posture throughout the day. So, you know, if you're sitting over your computer a lot or over your phone, which we find is hugely problematic and causes what we call text neck or eye posture, You know, people really begin to hunch, and that does affect the way they behave, and it, it activates the inhibition system. If you're spending a lot of time on your phone, try to change how you're holding your phone. I'm not going to tell you to put your phone down, because I, I know how hard that is to do, but what we see is that people who sit back and have their hold their phones up over them, as opposed to hunching over them, They don't seem to activate the inhibition system in the way that the people who are slouching do. So mind your posture, you know, realize what you're, notice the times when you start to slouch and make yourself small and see what you can do to correct that. And the other is pay attention to other people's posture, right? So when you're in an interaction, remember that presence begets presence. So when you're present, you are inviting others to be present. When you're present, you're saying, I am authentic. I am here. You can trust me. And, and they respond in kind. So what you want to do is pay attention to times when they're using body language that looks powerless. Like if, if, if their body language changes and suddenly they close off, try to figure out what happened. How can you get things on track again?
4: And for listeners who want to find you, the book, all of your work online, what is the best place for them to do that?
2: I would say I'm, I'm I'm very active on Twitter and I'm Amy J. C. Cuddy, so two C's because I have two middle initials. So do look for me there. You can look for me at amycuddy.com or amycuddyblog.com. But I you know, I, I, I think the book is really a useful and practical and very strongly evidence-based guide to understanding what's happening to your body and mind in these stressful situations, how you can overcome it. So please do look for the book, Presence Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. Obviously, you can buy it online. I always encourage people to buy from their local, you know, their indie bookstore, because I, I certainly love those places and would like to see them succeed, but it's widely available and it's now in 34 different languages. So it's, it's available all over the world. And for many of you, even if you're not native English speakers, I hope that it will be available in your native language.
4: Well, Amy, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom, all these practical strategies. Uh, it was a great conversation.
2: Thanks so much.
4: Thank you so much for listening to the Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.
3: Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader.